Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The people have a right to clean air, pure water, and to the preservation of the natural, scenic, historic, and aesthetic values of the environment. Pennsylvania's public natural resources are the common property of all the people, including generations yet to come. As trustee of these resources, the Commonwealth shall conserve and maintain them for the benefit of all the people. That's the text of Article 1, Section 27 of the Pennsylvania Constitution. It's known as the Environmental Rights in, in amendment that was approved by the legislature and voters nearly 50 years ago. It was historic then, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court made what was called a monumental decision two weeks ago, reaffirming the state's trustee role in the environment. Joining us on today's program is the man who wrote that amendment 45 years ago. I guess maybe it was a little longer than that. Former State Senator Franklin Curie, author of Pennsylvania's Environmental Rights Amendment. Senator Curie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be here. Also joining us is Professor John Dernbach, Commonwealth Professor of Environmental Law and Sustainability, Director of the Environmental Law and Sustainability Center at Widener University Commonwealth Law School. Professor Dernbach, welcome to the show. Good morning, Scott. Thanks. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Basically, what the court did, and we'll get into some more specifics of uh, the Supreme Court ruling on June 20th, but they basically said that the, the state is a trustee of the environment. So we're going to talk about what that means legally and talk about what it means in, in practice as well. But Senator Curie, when the court made that ruling, is that what you intended? Did you think back to when you wrote that amendment and uh, when it was approved by voters and uh, two sessions of the legislature? Yes. Now, we didn't foresee what cases would come up in the future. You can't do that. And or that it would take 40 years to get around to dealing with it. So but kind of we, like today. Yeah, yeah. But we did have the we did have the idea that in Pennsylvania's government should serve as a trustee of its natural resources, not as an, not as an accomplice to the devastation and exploitation of our natural resources, which it had been for the hundred years after the Civil War. We were the state government was a partner with the steel, coal, and iron companies in ripping apart the land and exploiting the resources, exploiting the people. And uh, and by the time we get around to this amendment, we've said enough's enough. We're going to reverse it. And that's why we put in this idea of people have a right to the environment, and the government's job should be to protect that, uh, not to serve as an accomplice to those who want to exploit it. So the general answer is yes. Now, on a specific side, you can get a little argument with, and John will tell you more about that. But now I feel very good about it. It's, it's, it's been a long wait, but I feel very happy about it. Justice Donahue wrote in the majority opinion, she actually used the word proprietor, that the state should not be a proprietor. And that goes back to what you were talking about with the state being in partnership with the steel industry, the coal industry. Yeah. Well, that's right. A proprietor means you're right. You're just a regular business person. Well, nothing wrong with being that, but it's not what government's role is. Uh, proprietor means you run it like a business. You can buy, sell, whatever you want. But this... Our amendment had a higher purpose. We're not the proprietor. We're trustees for the future. And that means you got to conserve so it will last for as long as we can and everybody gets the benefit of it. So there's a big difference between a public trust and a proprietary trust. And I think that came down the right way on it. Mm -hmm. Was there anything in particular, any one thing back in the late 60s when you came up with this uh, that prompted you to do it? I mean, as you said, you know, one of, one of the things I was thinking about when you mentioned 
the state being in partnership with the steel industry, the coal industry, the heavy industries in this state, is that that was one of the reasons that this state became an economic power. Some people, oh, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that you heard those arguments 50 oh, yeah, years ago yeah. that those those industries led to the state being an economic power. But we do know that there was that environmental impact. Well, there's no question that's why we became an economic power. But look at the price we paid. You go to northeastern Pennsylvania, you still see the scars from the strip mining and the mining and the polluted streams. The coal miners that are retired up there still have uh, 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 different, uh, different kind of lung diseases from coal mining. You know, all that. So they exploited the people, too, and they took the money to Philadelphia and New York. But that was all that came to me. My grandparents were both coal miners, and uh, I, I have been to the coal region many times. I've seen what it's like. And I'll never forget when I was a young lawyer in Sunbury searching a title in the courthouse in Coltman, finding a deed from the Shimokin and Pottsville Railroad Company to Monroe Culp for 93 acres. The borough of Coltman's built there now. That deed reserved to the coal company the right to pollute Shimokin Creek forever. I think that really triggered me off. So and that was it. Well, that was one of the things. Then I got to the legislature, and one thing led to another. And I said, "My said this is the time for a constitutional amendment," and it all came together: history, politics, and law. And that's what happened. Now, over the past uh, forty plus years, that uh, it has been part Article One, Section Twenty Seven has been part of Pennsylvania's constitution. It has been looked at by the courts and maybe even the legislature as being broad, that it wasn't specific enough. And that's probably one of the reasons that this is viewed as so monumental, so historic, is that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court actually was pretty succinct with what what, uh, this meant, correct? Yes. Well, my view of constitutional law, and particularly amendments to environmental rights, or any kind of rights amendment, should be broad. They shouldn't be specific. Look at the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the right to free speech and go to church. That's not very specific. It's just a broad principle. And I felt the same way here. We don't want to get too specific because you won't get it passed. It'll be bogged down in too many questions. You put out the broad principle... And then you let the courts and the lawyers figure it out. And I think that was that was what I thought all the way along, and I think I made the right decision. I wouldn't want to be any more specific than we were. Did you think it would take this long for a court to be more specific? No. I was surprised that it took all these years. But I think a lot of the courts just didn't know what to do with this. It was a revolutionary idea, and I just think that it took a long while. But now... With Justice Castile under the Robinson Township case said, look, you got to read the English language, and the language of the Constitution means what it says, and we got to go by that. And that's really what brought the thing where it ought to be. Well, the case that was decided means that the state cannot use proceeds from oil and gas leases on state lands for the general fund, that the money must go back into conservation programs. So, John Darbach, let me ask you about this. You know, I'm just setting that up as some background. That was the case. But what are the practical results of this ruling? Well, the the most practical piece of this is the uh, Supreme Court remanded the question about the diversion of money uh, back to the Commonwealth Court and said basically to the Commonwealth Court, figure out whether this money was uh, used to conserve and maintain public natural resources. Okay, can I stop you for just one second? Because I want to provide some background. You say remanded back to Commonwealth okay, Court. I... Commonwealth Court actually made a decision that was the opposite of the one that uh, the Supreme Court made. Yeah, so let me back up a bit. Okay. The, the, the way the case was ultimately framed was a claim that, even further back, in, in, the Oil and Gas Leasing Act uh, was used... Uh, for years and years and years on state forest lands f- to to manage leasing program of state forest lands uh, for oil and gas drilling. And it was a fairly small operation. There were maybe a couple million dollars a year came into the lease fund, and that money was used by DCNR, Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, and its predecessor agencies uh, for purposes of conservation of state forests and various purposes that were like that. All the money went there. All the money went straight back. And then two things changed. Uh, one was the the hydrofracturing revolution dramatically increased the 
um, amount of, of money and, and, and the consequences of leasing on state lands. So you went from a couple million dollars a year for, for leasing on state forests to more than a million dollars a year for leasing state forests. And the second thing that happened was the, uh, the recession that began in 2007, 2008, created a budget shortfall. And the budget shortfall meant uh, that the legislature was looking for sources of money. So you had this vast increase uh, in leasing on state land, a lot of which was done, I think, more or less to help balance the budget. And then you had legislative diversions of the money that had gone back to state forest land uh, into the general fund. For the first time. For the first time. And so the claim in, in, that the Pennsylvania Environmental Defense Foundation brought was, it was a claim that said, look, this is unconstitutional. You can't take this money. You can't expand leasing like this with all the environmental consequences it has and then take the money uh, um, from, from that leasing and, 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 and spend it for something else. And it was a claim that was really framed by what, 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 what uh, uh, Franklin Curry said a few minutes ago was a Robinson Township case. And in the Robinson Township case in 2013, three of the court's seven justices said that the Environmental Rights Amendment, read the Environmental Rights Amendment uh, for, for what it actually says, that the state has a public trust obligation to conserve and maintain these public natural resources. But it wasn't a majority. And so what the Pennsylvania Environmental Defense Foundation did, building on this plurality opinion that was not yet quite law, as they said, the state has an obligation, excuse me, the state cannot lease lands in this way and spend the money in this way consistent with the Constitution. And what the Supreme Court said is that's right. They can't do that. Now, what the Supreme Court also said um, was that the, the Commonwealth Court, the court that originally decided this case, um, has to figure out whether the money that was spent and the way that the legislature assigned those monies is consistent with the constitutional obligation. In other words, there were several hundred million dollars, um, probably three, four hundred million dollars uh, that, that was uh, diverted from the general fund between about 2008 and about 2015. And the court said the royalty money, um, because you're effectively, with, when you're leasing oil and gas, you're effectively selling the state's uh, uh, resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the, the money from the royalties themselves is subject to the constitutional public trust. In other words, the state has can't just turn that money over to the general fund. The state has to spend that money to conserve and maintain public natural resources. And so the question that the Commonwealth Court is going to have to decide now is whether that money and other money uh, was spent in, in, in accordance with the constitutional obligation. And I have a big question coming up here in a few minutes having to do with those proceeds. But, uh, Senator Curie, when you were in the legislature, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a, a sense of uh, what the legislative body, what representatives and senators are thinking uh, when they enact law that has to do with uh, the environment or conservation. Uh, and now they will have to think about the state because the court has ruled that the state is a trustee of the environment. Right. When So that it, it would be more... Well, Tell me, will it be more, as they're contemplating legislation, will it be more than just, okay, is this legal, is this constitutional? Uh, They will have to pass muster on whether it actually is constitutional and, uh, you know, complies with Article 1, Section 27, correct? Yes. I think one of the secondary benefits of the opinion— the decision is that it's going to bring this more into public discussion and remind every public official in Pennsylvania that they are a partial trustee of the environment. In Pennsylvania, you cannot take public office, whether you're township supervisor, county commissioner, or state treasurer, or state legislator, or governor, or Supreme Court, without taking an oath to uphold the Constitution. And that means you're taking up the oath to uphold Article One, Section 27. Now, I think most legislators and other public officials forget that. But this court opinion is reminding them you can't forget it. You're taking the oath and you've got this obligation. So I think you're going to see more and more public discussion of it. And I think that in itself is a very good thing for the body politics. So I feel good about that. 
You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. We're talking about the Supreme Court ruling, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling made a couple weeks ago, having to do with Article One, Section 27 of the Pennsylvania Constitution, and the court ruled that uh, the state is the trustee of public lands and basically uh, made Article One, Section 27, reaffirmed it, even made it stronger. And as uh, you heard earlier in the program, uh, it is something that uh, legislature, legislators and uh, future generations will have to think about as they are enacting legislation. Our guest today, former State Senator Franklin Curie, author of Pennsylvania's Environmental Rights Amendment, Professor John Dernbach, who is Commonwealth Professor of Environmental Law and Sustainability and Director of the Environmental Law and Sustainability Center at Widener University Commonwealth Law School. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. We are on Twitter, at smarttalkw. UITF. All right. So, John Darbuck, I'm going to ask you this question because this is one of the first things I thought of. And I thought, you know, when we're talking about practical implications of, of this ruling. Governor Wolf, for the last three years, including this year, has asked for a tax on Marcellus Shale drilling. Now, it remains to be seen as to whether that will actually be approved. Uh, There has been no appetite in the Republican-controlled legislature for enacting a tax on Marcellus shale drilling. Um, You know, many people say, well, well, we already have an impact fee, that the money goes back to the municipalities, that, you know, where there is an impact from drilling. But my question is, will this ruling have any impact? We'll talk about the impact fee, but will it have any impact on whether the state can enact a Marcellus Shale drilling tax? Obviously it can, but where that money goes? Well, I I don't think so, and here's why. Um, Let's start with a distinction between the sale of public natural resources, which is what a lease does on state land. You're selling public natural resources for for, for money and taxing the sale of those resources. And a tax on the sale of the resources, I think, is different. A second reason, it, 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 because you're not, it's not about the resource itself, it's a tax on the sale of the resource. The second thing is that most of the, uh, of, of the, of the drilling that is done in the state uh, is on private land. And, and the private oil and gas on private land uh, is not a public natural resource and is not going to be subject to the public trust restrictions that exist for public natural resources. Okay, now I'm going to push back a little bit, and uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I noticed that you said I think. Well, the, 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 the giving a legal opinion on the radio. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I, you're, you're not a judge. I understand, but I'm just I'm, I'm kind of picking at well, your 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 opinion there. But I guess my my question is, you know, with this court ruling, it basically said. That okay. Now they were talking about state lands, obviously, but a natural resource that the money has to go for conservation efforts. Yeah, but the Constitution also says public natural resources. Okay. And what John's pointing out is correct. Most of the drilling is on private property. That's not a public natural resource. Okay. So the Constitutional Amendment does not apply that. That was one of the very important amendments that was made in my proposal as I went through the House and the Senate. There were five amendments added. One of them was to make insert public in front of natural resources to avoid this controversy. Okay. All right. So public, there's a big difference. That word public makes right. a big difference. And I might put out there are two or three other amendments. That's a, when I introduced the bill, it had to go through the legislature twice. So I never forget. The, it has to be all done the first year because it's got to pass. Right. The House two sessions, two consecutive right. sessions. So yeah. the first week in the bill was in the House, they, the Speaker called me in, and they, well, he wanted to go over it. He liked it. But he didn't like the phrase, in their natural estate, in describing natural resources, because he thought that might impede 
uh, the uh, urban renewal projects in Philadelphia. So we took out the phrase "undernatural estate," and then over in the Senate, Dr. Goddard thought the word "preserve" should be "conserve," and they made that change, and I agreed with that. So there are four or five amendments like that, and putting public in there was one of them. Preserve and conserve. What was the difference there, Dr. Goddard? Well, we were talking about Maurice Goddard. Yeah, well, I think preserve means just you almost freeze the status quo, and I never really had that in mind, but may. Conserve means you can use it, but you got to use it in such a way that you protect it, you minimize damage, and you uh, uh, you continue its use as long as you can. So, conserve and preserve are two different words altogether. Uh, Professor Dernbach, and this is, I find this interesting that uh, one word here or there. As a law professor, you probably discuss this often, how one word here or there can have a, a, make a, a big difference. Uh, yeah, all the time. We, we talk about that all the time. I mean, the, the words are chosen with care and words matter. And, and what's really important about this particular case um, is that the, for more than four decades, um, we've, been, we've been sort of working with Article One, Section 27, but not with the tax. The, the, the Commonwealth Court came up with a three-part balancing test that has nothing to do with the text of the Environmental Rights Amendment. And so it's basically judge-made law rather than the actual text of the Constitution was governing this for more than four decades. Talk about that three-step process. Well, the, the, what happened was there, there, were, uh, there was a case that was brought early on and uh, the Payne versus Kassab case. Uh, and, and it involved the diversion of a, of, of a small amount of parkland in Wilkes-Barre for, for public highway. Uh, and and the, the Commonwealth Court got concerned that, that Article One, Section 27 could be used to stop anything. Um, and so they, they, the, the court basically said, we have to be realistic, not legalistic. And then it, then it went on and said, There's a, we're going to apply instead a three-part balancing test. Was there compliance with all applicable law? Uh, was there an effort made to minimize environmental harm? Uh, and uh, is, is the, if you balance the, the, the harms and the benefits, um, is it, it was a decision to proceed reasonable? Uh, and, and, and basically what, what happens with that test is all the care and attention that, 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 that Franklin Curry and his colleagues put into drafting the Environmental Rights Amendment, which you just heard about in terms of word choice and all that, all of that got set aside, all of it. Uh, and, and, and as a young lawyer at the Department of Environmental Resources, everybody understood that the text meant nothing, that the real law was Payne versus Kassab. All right, the three-part balancing test in Payne versus Kassab. Now, in my academic role, um, a couple of years ago, I had a student, Mark Prokopchak, uh, look at all the reported cases under, under the Payne versus Kassab test, and the government won nearly all of them. So you had a test that had no basis in the Constitution and a test that, that for all practical purposes, gave environmentally oriented litigants nothing. Yeah. Now, let me point out that the Supreme Court last week finally gave Payne versus Kassab and that three-part test a burial. It's no longer applicable. It's, it's, it's dead where it ought to be because, as John points out and as the court pointed out, it has no relevance to the language of the Constitution. And on that point, let me just say something that people should know about what John, John Dernbach has done. At the Widener Law School, under John's direction, they have compiled a complete legislative history of Article One, Section 27, complete with each version of the bill and all the speeches and comments and then legal analysis and all the way through to its adoption. So if anybody really wants to look at the legislative history, they can find it one place by going to Widener Law School and looking under John Dernbach and Legislative History of Article 1, Section 27. It's all there on your computer, and it's wonderful because you can see the whole thing in one package. How often, I'm just curious, uh, how often has uh, Article 1, Section 27 been cited over the years, in those 40 years? Oh. It's a lot. It's, it's dozens and dozens of cases. Uh, and I've, I've, um, um, I, I could, I could give you a lot of detail on that, but, but I'd say probably the dominant cases um, involve the Payne versus Kassab test. There's some other uses that the courts have made of it over the years, uh, but probably the dominant part was was the Payne versus Kassab test. Did that go to a higher court that uh, there was this three part balancing? I mean, as you said, the court ba basically made their own legislation. 
Yeah. What happened was the Commonwealth Court made that decision. It went to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court specifically said in Payne versus Kassab, uh, we're not we're, we're 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 not adopting this test. And so the Supreme Court had never ever adopted this test. Um, but it was for. It was basically the law of Pennsylvania, the the way it worked out by inertia, almost. Yeah, by by inertia, yeah. and and, um, and 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 so what was so powerful and important about this particular case, the Pennsylvania Environmental Defense Foundation case, is for the first time since 1971, when the voters adopted this amendment by a four to one vote, for the first time, a majority of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court says. The text is what matters. This is constitutional law, and we intend to enforce it the way it's written. Mm -hmm. Will this lead to, you you said there have been a lot of uh, times where Article 1, Section 27 has been been cited. I I imagine, you know, there's so many times where developments are going up, uh, uh, you know, pipeline projects, so many times where it's, it's been cited along those lines. But will there be more litigation, more uh, times where it will be cited? More often, I guess I should ask. Well, I can't say how much, what the quantity of lawsuits is going to be. But look, these state agencies like the, the Department of Environmental Resources, uh, when, when, you, when you want an application to do something that's going to affect the environment, you've got to fill out a form that shows how you're going to impact the environment. That in itself is revolutionary. They never did that before Article 1, Section 27. So right there, you got the developer thinking up front, how am I going to fit this into the environment? And I think that's having a salutary effect. Now, I think this will always be lawsuits. And as, uh, as a retired lawyer, I can't dismiss that lightly. But, uh, <laughs> I think people just got to realize that the environment is part of our existence. If we don't take care of these environments, we've got serious problems for the, for the future. Mm-hmm. So. John, you laughed. Yeah, well, this, <laughs> what, what happened is with the Robinson Township case in 2013, uh, is the case that uh, in which the, the state Supreme Court invalidated part of the state shale gas legislation, Act 13, right, right. Uh, and used Article 1, Section 27 as part of the reason for that. Uh, since that time, there have been a bunch of cases um, that, that have been filed. And I've been talking to all sorts of lawyers over the last even couple of weeks about, well, now what do we do that the Payne versus Kassab test is gone? Uh, and there are, there are lawyers that are filing post-hearing briefs. There are, there's all sorts of active litigation. This is not um, the kind of thing where you have to wait a couple of years for the cases to all develop because the Robinson Township case in late 2013 inspired a lot of these cases. And now lawyers, in, in the wake of the more recent case, in which we went from a plurality decision to a majority decision, saying Article 1, Section 27 matters, we're going to we're going to see a lot a lot more, and it's going to it's it's unfolding. It's all unfolding pretty rapidly. Yeah, and one of the things I feel good about is the dissenting opinion by Justice Bear agreed with practically everything the majority said. The only his basic reason for disagreeing was there was no language in the amendment talking about the proceeds of the resources. Mm-hmm. But other than that, he's completely with them. So that made it effectively we have five votes now. Justice Saylor. Uh, his dissenting opinion is not quite as clear as it might be, but he uh, went along with some of it, and he agrees that the trust doctrine is now part of the state constitution. So there, I, so I think we've come a long way, and I feel pretty good about the future of the amendment. Uh, does this create a hole at all? And I mean, I know we're only talking a few million dollars here. Uh, your million may not be much, much to me. That's a lot of money. But when we're talking about a million, a billion and a half, a billion dollar, a billion and a half budget deficit this year, does this create a hole in the state budget because some of this money was going to the general fund? Uh, I don't think so. Look, they're not dealing with this now. I've been following the budget, and right now they're looking at extending gambling or thinking about borrowing money on the tobacco tax settlement or other ways. They could always raise taxes. I mean, there there are ways to get money. The legislature just have to make up its mind and do something. But, I mean, this money that has been going to the general fund for the last uh, eight, well, ten years now, will not be, and I'm wondering if that's this budget or how long does this take take the, take effect? 
I would I would think it would take right away, but I'm not sure. So, what, however, amount of money that was going into the general fund from leasing on state lands will now have to go back to uh, conservation yeah. programs. Yeah, but I don't. I think that's right, but I don't think that's the main part of why the state's having budget difficulties. Oh no, no, I don't either. I'm just I'm yeah. just asking whether at a time when every penny counts, yeah. uh, that if you know this is a, a few million dollars less that can go into yeah. the general fund. You know, I, I wonder about uh, rulings like this, John. Um, they're not retroactive. Well, there is an interesting question about that, okay. and I think the Commonwealth Court is going to have to look at that because the legislation that the Supreme Court held unconstitutional is legislation that transferred the money to the general fund for particular fiscal years. And so implicit in the court's decision, I think, is is a question the Commonwealth Court is going to have to look at is, well, what years does this all apply to? Does this perspective or is this yeah. looking backwards? Yeah. The, the other interesting question, uh, there's, there's a trust concept called an accounting where you figure out how the money was actually spent. And it may be that, that, that money that is spent for at least part of the general operations of the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources uh, in, in the Department of Environmental Protection, maybe that money is conservation and maintenance money, and so maybe spending it in that way uh, uh, makes constitutional sense. But that's something the Commonwealth Court is going to have to look at. I have a question here from a listener. Ask, uh, does this ruling essentially forbid the legislature from raiding D.C. and wires oil and gas lease fund to balance the general fund? Well, to the extent it takes money from uh, the, uh, the proceeds from what's leased on state lands, it does. But outside of that, it doesn't. I mean, it, it, it's, it, this is limited to the royalties of uh, leases on state lands. Okay. We have a uh, – well, now we're starting to get some phone calls to it, but I want to uh, make sure that we get this other question in uh, – I despaired that the constitutional Article 1, Section 27 had been erased by the Republican-led legislature and different governors who seemed intent for the last 15 years on selling off as much land public and private as possible for gas drilling. Additionally, they even tried to force municipalities to yield their local jurisdiction to the drillers as if the people of Pennsylvania had no say over their own lands. It looked bleak, but this court ruling reasserts the primacy of the Constitution's protection of the environment, land, water, and air. Agreed? Well, that's right. And don't forget, in the Robinson Township case, they upheld township zoning, which is just the point she's making. So I think this amendment has had a very beneficial effect. All right. I want to uh, move on to uh, an another issue and having to do with the environment. Governor Wolf vetoed a bill that would have banned municipalities from outlawing plastic bags. In effect, townships, boroughs, and cities can still do that. They can uh, ban plastic bags, the kind that you get from grocery stores, that kind of thing. Uh, there were a number of protests and uh, people who were pretty outspoken who worked in the industry that uh, made plastic bags. Actually, I didn't realize there were so many manufacturers of plastic bags here in Pennsylvania that are afraid of losing their jobs. Senator, your thoughts on that? Well, I think the governor did the right thing because the township supervisor, local municipality officials have their have the have the same responsibility on Article One, Section Twenty Seven, as anybody else in state government does. So, what the governor says is, well, we can't have the state legislature tying their hands on enforcing the amendment as they see fit. So, this doesn't mandate this ban; it just leaves it up to each municipality, mm -hmm. which which I think is a good idea. All right, sense. let's let's go to a caller in Camp Hill. This is Joe in Camp Hill. Joe, you're on the air. Uh, thank you, Scott. Frank, I used to work in the LRB. I'm trying to figure something out, not having read this court case. Can the money that is to be used now under the Supreme Court case for preservation of natural resources, can that go into the general fund and be dedicated to DCNR so that money that would have gone to DCNR would be freed up to go to other channels? Oh, it doesn't have to be because the law already... The fund setting this up, the fund created about 19, 10 or 20 years ago, provides it should go for the uh, uh, the, uh, the benefit of the environment. And what uh, right. this was changed by a fiscal code amendment, and the court right. held invalid the fiscal code amendment. So the original law prevails, and the money has to go now for environmental purposes. 
Thank you very much for your call. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you for uh, being with us today. Former State Senator Franklin Curie and Professor John Dernbach of uh, Widener University Commonwealth Law School. It's going to be interesting to see uh, just how this plays out and the practical implications of this ruling. But uh, uh, John Dernbach, you wrote about this and said that uh, you know you quoted Actually, it was Justice Baer who wrote for the minority, the dissenting uh, opinion, that this is a monumental decision. It's absolutely a monumental decision. The text uh, uh, is is what counts. Uh, the, the Payne versus Kassab test is gone. The court, for the first time, held legislation unconstitutional on the strength of Article One, Section 27 alone. Uh, and for that and other reasons, it's a very, very important decision. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. I've overseen more than 3,000 autopsies. From an insect, I can find time of death. From the fingernails, I know she wasn't alone. And in the eyes, I can see how she was killed. A murder victim can't tell you their story, but I can. I'm Graham Hectrick the coroner. I speak for the dead. The first season of A&E's Investigation Discovery TV show, Coroner, I Speak for the Dead, was a hit. The show recreated several of Dauphin County Coroner Graham Hetrick's most compelling and perplexing cases. It's been renewed for a second season by the network. So joining us is Dauphin County Coroner Graham Hetrick, and I guess I can say star of, of the show now. <laughs> hey, hey, thanks for uh, being with us today. Well, let's put it this way. I still do my own lawn, and I still plow my own driveway. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't matter that nah. it, your neighbors or the, the, the wife are not saying, yeah, Graham, no, you're a star. No, no, no that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first season was was a hit. I mean, it uh, looked at uh, – and, and you know, I saw a quote that I, I thought was pretty cool. said that uh, – it was from a, a viewer – who said, what I like about the show is it's not in Los Angeles, it's not in New York, where so many TV shows are based. But, you know, this is something that happens in middle America, and that's uh, metaphorically speaking rather than geographically speaking. But that there are cases outside of uh, New York and uh, L.A. and other big cities that are really interesting. I think it does. uh, It's been great collaboration with uh, Investigation Discovery. I have to say that. They've been very good. And I, I have a, I'm part of the process. So uh, to that extent, they've, they've done something new, and that is most of these uh, homicide shows uh, talk about the uh, investigative part from a criminal standpoint. Uh, what this show, I hope, portrays, and I think it does, is uh, the role of medical legal death investigation. And that's essentially what I am, a medical legal death investigator. And uh, it is the different perspective of homicides. Now, these happen to be homicides, but truthfully, 70% of all the cases I handle are sudden deaths that end up being natural, mostly cardiac. Mm -hmm. And that's because that's where sudden death occurs. If you have cancer, it's a a longer... uh, about and you know about it, uh, so um, from that standpoint, it's uh, it does give the viewer a different look, and uh, it clarifies some of the things that we do and how we coordinate with a team. And so, my goal was to have a show that promotes some of the forensic science behind uh, investigation, especially medical legal investigation. The second thing was to portray the fact that it is a team and that I'm only one part of a team. They glamorize this a little bit because, after all, it is TV, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, And they say, Graham said this or Graham. And the fact of the matter is that what 
the teamwork is is really the most important thing. And that does come through in the show. Good. I, I mean, Good. you uh, actually, it's very noticeable because. You know, we have so many local municipalities, that there are police departments involved in, in, in the show. The officers have been interviewed. The detectives have been interviewed for the Great. program. Um, so, but, you know, what you just said, I never really thought about it before, but you're right that so many of those shows are coming at it from the criminal's point of view. Just last night I watched a, a, a show, uh, and it... Um, it was talking about this family, this uh, husband and wife, and the kind of relationship they had. And the, the first husband died of what they thought was a heart attack at the time. He was The wife had him cremated right away, so they never were able to solve whether that's actually what killed him. Right. Uh, but it was the whole you know, 50 minutes of the show was about the relationship between the husband and the wife and from the criminal's point of view. So, yeah, you definitely have a unique perspective on it. I think it's so important that the title wasn't really accidental. It was it was almost fate <laughs> because um, I have I have over the years always felt that the data on how people die, if we listen to the dead, they can tell us how we should be living. Right now we have an an opioid epidemic. Right. But I don't even like to call it an opioid epidemic. It is opioids the tool. But the truth of the matter is we have an epidemic of individuals who are in such pain they have to anesthetize themselves. Some of that pain is physical. Other uh, parts of that pain, I think, are spiritual, let's say. Uh, there's pain of the soul. There's there's loss of hope for many people. There are people who feel that life is just filled with superficiality and lacking of meaning. And to do that, they have to anesthetize that pain. And that's why the richest and freest people in the world right now are killing themselves at amazing rates. You are in a position, and I've talked to colleagues in other counties uh, Pam Gay down in York County, for example, sure, yeah. uh, it was one of the most outspoken coroners uh, uh, about this. But what are the trends you're seeing when it comes to heroin? I mean, yes, it's called the opioid epidemic, but uh, it's mostly heroin overdoses and maybe heroin laced with fentanyl or something like that. But what are some of the trends? This has nothing to do with this, the TV show. This but is still. the most scary thing because the fact of the matter is that it has gone from heroin to synthetics, fentanyls, and fentanyls that are so powerful that if they touch your hand, they can affect you. Um, that's car fentanyl and very, very powerful fentanyls that are used to anesthetize things like, oh, I don't know, an elephant? Or a yeah, it could have an impact on a human being. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it, is, it is a real issue. And um, I, I think these are important things, but we have to ask the right questions. Uh, you were just talking about the environment. You got to, you got to take, you got to be serious about your data. And you also have to ask the right questions. And here, the right question is what, not what we do about opioids, because we're not going to legislate ourselves out of this. We're not going to arrest ourselves out of this. This is a change in attitude. We have to start asking, who are we? What are our values? And then at that point, we can make a big difference. Yeah, I think what you just said is so true that uh, uh, law enforcement, almost everyone, is in agreement that uh, the war on drugs uh, was a failure and that uh, yeah. you cannot arrest yourself out of it, that uh, it has to be looked at as a medical issue, maybe right. a spiritual issue, as as uh, you described it. All right, let's, so let's go on to the TV show. Uh, last year, you had uh, you, you you focused on some of Dauphin Co County's most high-profile homicide cases. And we're back. <laughs> well, you see, I, you know, when I, when I heard that there was going to be a season two, I was hoping there would be. Yeah. But when I heard there was going to be a season two, I'm like, okay, are these the eight second tier of uh, most compelling cases or what? Well, actually, it's going to be ten. Ten? There's okay. Ten right. episodes. And I I have a, a little bit of room to choose from because uh, the bottom line is they've done a certified about 13,000 deaths, and out of those, about 600 homicides. So uh, I've been a part of the investigation on each one of those, and uh, each one have 
unique stories. Uh, some of the, the new episodes, uh, uh, I was looking through that, and uh, some of them have to do uh, with real planners. And by planners, I mean people that premeditatively committed mm-hmm. homicide. Everyone thinks they have the perfect murder, huh? Right. <laughs> and uh, and some of, the, some of those real planners generally lay in the category of a poisoning case, and we have one of those. Uh, there's a serial murder. Uh, Who's that? Um, it's a... Well, I, I don't want to give away... Well, the, I know you don't want to give away too much, but, but still. But it, it was a, a gentleman that uh, in this area, in Dauphin County area... Uh, uh, killed multiple women, and he had ultimately a signature pattern that broke broke the case. Mm-hmm. And but again, it showed this dedication of uh, everybody working on the case because it it took a while to solve these cases. Um, yesterday, I had somebody go through the lab, and I showed them a bone that I work I was working on. It's a femur bone. It was found about a month ago, and. Uh, I, I'm sure after the results get back, DNA and whatnot, that it's going to relate back to the famous Joey Miller murders, where he had killed multiple women and put them in the landfill and that type of thing. Why? Why are you so sure? Um, because of statements of Joey at the time, 21 years ago, and um, also the location of this femur bone, which is that big bone in your leg. Right. Right. You're a bone expert, right? Um, I'm not an expert. Okay. <laughs> Let's put it this way. I've, I, I'm very good at shallow grave recovery, and uh, I've done it for a long, long time. Okay. So go back why you thought Joey, this was part of the Joey Miller case. Because he, at one time when he was under suspicion, he started throwing bones in a certain area. And uh, when we went back and looked at his transcripts of interrogation. This was probably that bone. Just for background purposes, for those who may not be familiar, a little bit of background on Joey Miller, which was one of the cases... That in that, last season. Right, yeah. in last yeah. season. A little bit of background about the Joey Miller case. Well, Joey was uh, a, a young man from Steelton that uh, um, killed and, and sexually assaulted multiple women. And uh, we finally... Uh, that was finally discovered when he was actually caught, and this woman survived, and that was the lead that uh, brought us to Joey, and uh, and then from there, uh, he had a partial confession, then recanted it about the landfill, which was behind the East Mall, which is now apartment buildings. That's all changed, and is that, as a matter of fact, that's why this femur was there. The, the femur was there. Well, they they are doing construction work, and they came across this bone, which I routinely look at bones and they, they say, was this human or is this animal from construction sites and stuff like that. Mm. How big is a femur bone? I guess it has to do with, you know, uh, depending on how large the person was, but is a, a femur bone is, is a pretty big bone, isn't it? Big bone. It's one of the bigger bones. Well, it is the biggest bone. I'm going to say I thought yeah. so, yeah. It's the biggest yeah. bone. Yeah. So when you saw this, and, and even I'm... I'm a little bit surprised that those who were working on the site recognized it as a bone. Yeah, well, it's oh, it's pronounced. It's one of the more. It's it's like finding a skull. The femur bone is so human. Uh-huh. <laughs> as soon as I saw it, I said, "Yeah, we got a problem." <laughs> so okay, so let's talk a little more about yeah. this season. You obviously don't want to divulge uh, too much, but what were you looking to do with second season? What did you learn in season one? that you could apply to season two or maybe something that uh, you wanted to do a little bit differently? I, I think there was a little more filming in this area. Uh, all the reconstruction of each scene, which was brilliantly done this year, I've, I've looked at all the fine cuts, um, is done out in Los Angeles. But uh, the exteriors and, of course, all the interviews and stuff are, are done here locally. And so uh, that was really well done. I'm really proud of the work they did. And I've gone through the fine cuts, and they're really good. So there's a lot of interesting twists and turns with each one. But each one tells a different story uh, with different emotions and different motives. You know, that is one of the things that I think that the people in central Pennsylvania uh, would would like about the program or liked about uh, season one is that so much of it was filmed 
in uh, central Pennsylvania, in, in, in Dauphin County. Uh, a lot of Susquehanna River shots, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of the most beautiful rivers. I know, I know, I, I know. I've had people from Europe come over here and say, I can't believe you have this river running through your city. But one thing they did do, that okay, now I, I don't call this a criticism, but yep. they, the, there was too much ice in the river sometimes <laughs> when they... <laughs> well, <laughs> that's true. We are now in 140 countries... Really? Uh, yeah, there's uh, including 39 uh, uh, areas in Latin America. And uh, I actually had a person the other day saying that his fiance was so excited about coming over to America. She's from Russia and Kiev because she was coming to Harrisburg where she could meet Graham. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Are you kidding me? Kiev? And. Yeah, so. It's high on their list. <laughs> Influence elections and come meet Graham Hatchett. So I, I have a Russian connection like Trump. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I was, I, we had talked about uh, you know, the kind of mail or communication that you got in season one where uh, you got a lot of uh, people asking about unsolved cases. If you yeah. could uh, yeah. lend your expertise. Still getting that? Uh, yes, now only from multiple countries. So there's a, a lot of people out there that that do have concerns, uh, and of course I can't I can't handle that. <laughs> I uh, I work with uh, cold case groups here, but uh, it, it's just one of those things where it's overwhelming. Um, I I have referred one or two to specific specialists they didn't know how to find. Mm. Uh, but uh, that's about all I can do. We only have about a minute left. Program uh, uh, for season two, season premiere is? Uh, the season premiere is on uh, July 17th, but on August the 12th, we're going to have a uh, exclusive preview of one of the episodes before it goes national, and that's Love and Pieces, and I won't even explain what that means. I can it's, only imagine. It's going to be at Allenberry <laughs> at 715, and the Allenberry Resorts is, uh, um, is, is where it's going to be in the theater there. So I'm real excited about this. We had a, we had a premiere the last time. Uh, at Springgate, but this is going to be at Allenberry because they have a theater. Right. Weather's not going to be a problem. And there's a meet and greet, an episode uh, uh, of uh, that's, that particular episode with questions and answers out afterwards. Well, well, we'll have information on our website. Graham Hetrick, Dolphin County Coroner, star of The Coroner, I Speak <laughs> for the Dead. Thank you very much for being with sure, us today. Great to be with you. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk a little uh, show business as well, talking about Hedy Lamar, no relation. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org/spine.